We've heard a lot about the greatest generation in the last few years, but there's still one remarkable story from World War II that remains to be told. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us in the hour ahead as we learn how we almost lost some of the greatest art treasures of Western civilization during the Second World War. Hitler and the Nazis either stole or destroyed countless paintings and sculptures by some of the world's finest artists. You know, you can't make this stuff up. These guys were determined to uh, pull off, and they did, the greatest theft in history. Today, Robert Edsel will tell us how a ragtag gang of Allied scholars and curators called the Monuments Men protected masterpieces such as Da Vinci's Mona Lisa and The Last Supper and Michelangelo's David from being stolen or damaged. Robert has collected a stunning photographic record of these efforts in his new book, Rescuing Da Vinci. He'll tell us how the Monuments Men were able to save Europe's masterpieces, how their work continues, and what their experience teaches us today. Rescuing Da Vinci, it's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Especially if you've ever lingered over Mona Lisa or The Last Supper, you'll want to stay with us for the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and I'm thrilled to have today as our special guest, Robert M. Edsel. Robert has just released a stunning book called Rescuing Da Vinci as a companion to the documentary film The Rape of Europa. He's here to tell us the story of how the Allies rescued thousands of art treasures from the Nazis amid the devastation of World War II. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I'm joined by Robert Edsel, who's written a book called Rescuing Da Vinci. Robert has also co-produced a documentary film called The Rape of Europa, and this is all dealing with the untold story of the art taken and looted and destroyed and hidden away in World War II, and then how it was recovered in a lot of ways by heroic Americans and allies in a group of men called the Monuments Men. Robert, thanks for joining us. Rick, great to be here. Did I describe that properly? Tell us about the Monuments Men Foundation and your work. Well, the Monuments Men Foundation is a foundation I founded last year. It really kind of formalized the years of research and work that I've been doing to bring their story to attention. This is a group of men and women numbering about 350 or so, about 70% of whom were Americans from 13 nations that were museum directors, curators, and art historians who volunteered for service during World War II to try and preserve and protect the great cultural treasures in Europe. Of course, their efforts initially focused on trying to avoid damage to churches and monuments and things. But as they got into Germany, the focus then was on movable works of art, and it led to what was the greatest treasure hunt in history, the effort to find and ultimately return literally millions of paintings, sculptures, stained glass, religious relics, and other things to the people and churches and museums from which they were stolen by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And for a Europhile and a person who just loves art like me and a lot of my friends, paging through your book, it's a big coffee table type book with just gorgeous photographs, Really, it's breathtaking because all of the art that we've loved for so many years, we realize was cut from its frames and rolled up like carpets and hid away in tunnels by people anticipating the war. And a lot of this happened actually in the the 1930s in anticipation of the destruction of the war. And then uh, it took some heroics to uh, get it back. And you lay out several different threats to the art. What was the most threatening thing to the art as this war approached? You make a great point, Rick. Uh, I mean, when I was living in Florence in 1996 uh, for a period of five years, it occurred to me one day standing there on the Ponte Vecchio Bridge looking out over at the Ponte Santa Trinita, the Ponte Vecchio being the one bridge that wasn't destroyed in Florence. All the other bridges were blown up by the Nazis as they fled. And it occurred to me this astonishing thought, how did all these great works of art survive during World War II? Who were the people that saved them? And I was embarrassed for the times I'd been in Europe. It had never occurred to me. And these monuments, men and women, did such a remarkable job finding these things and ultimately returning them that when you go to these museums today, everything looks largely like it did prior to the threat of war. But in 1937, 38, 39, had you visited the great museums in the world, the Louvre, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, uh, the Hermitage in St. Petersburg after 1941, museum directors, curators, uh, volunteers had packed up all of these museums' belongings and had removed them to various places for safekeeping, the original concern being less threat than it was damage from bombing, vibration, things like that. But certainly as the uh, Nazis arrived in these various countries and became occupiers, 
their focus shifted to concern about theft. So, you know, you have museums such as the Louvre that evacuated more than 400,000 works of art in a matter of weeks, and the Hermitage, which attempted to try and remove the more than 2 million works of art that they had, they were able to get a million of works packed up and put on trains and sent to Siberia where they were safely out of harm's way during the war. However, more than a million items they couldn't get out and had to protect them there. You mentioned uh, the Nazis looted perhaps one-fifth of all of Europe's art, according to one website. Anyways, millions of works of art. And then these countries were, they were impoverished by the war, but they still had the priorities and the wherewithal to muster this energy to lovingly save this art. There's quite an appreciation for the cultural heritage in each of these nations, isn't there? In America, we have a word patrimony in our language. We don't use it very often, but we're 5% of the world's population, and the other 95% of the people in the world use patrimony every day. It's an important concept. In some countries, it pertains to things besides art, but in all these countries, they value art, culture, and it's uh, so easy to see when you see uh, footage, uh, for instance, footage we have in our documentary film, The Rape of Europa, of citizens who are volunteering to help museum officials carry these works of art out of their museums because so many of the people that worked in these Hmm. museums were already serving in the front lines trying to fight the war. So it's a very dramatic and moving thing to witness in the photographs in Rescuing Da Vinci and seeing this archival footage trying to protect and preserve these things that they've loved for thousands of years. I didn't know this photographic evidence of all of this work and and heroism even existed until I looked at your book, Rescuing Da Vinci. Now, uh, let's just highlight a few of the great masterpieces that we all know and love and talk about their story in World War II. Tell us, uh, Robert, Mona Lisa, how were her travels during the war? Mona Lisa was moved around on six separate occasions before being returned to Paris and rehung in the Louvre in 1945. And this was a situation that was typical of many of the great works that were moved on multiple occasions, trying to keep them out of the way of German troops. And an interesting story about the Mona Lisa, on its initial removal from the Louvre, it was put in an ambulance with a curator from the museum. It was sealed up to provide a climate-controlled environment, and it arrived safely at the Chateau in Chambord outside Paris, where many of the thousands of works of art from the Louvre were uh, placed for safekeeping. And the painting arrived safely, but the curator fell out of the ambulance, practically suffocated to death from the protection that they'd uh-huh. afforded the artwork. So the, the French, part of the resistance movement, actually bundled the Mona Lisa away six times to stay out of Nazi hands. Is that is that the deal? Well, the resistance hadn't entered into that yet. The, at this stage, just as the evacuation of the Louvre took place prior to the uh, arrival of German troops into Paris, they were well aware that the troops were coming and these things were packed up and moved en masse in an effort to try and protect them and get them out of Paris, fearing that Paris was going to be bombed. Incredible. And Robert, tell me about the saga of the Night Watch, the the masterpiece by Rembrandt in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. The Night Watch is a a remarkable work of art by Rembrandt. It's uh, more than 10 feet high, 14 feet wide, this tremendously large canvas that was rolled up like a carpet, uh, taken out of its frame and rolled up, and then it was moved around the country on a number of occasions and, in fact, ultimately was placed in its own silo, if you will, in uh, St. Petersburg, Holland, to protect it until the end of the war when it was ultimately returned. It was moved on barge several times and then by truck, and it was just a typical example of what the Rijksmuseum was faced with trying to protect their great works. And that was also hiding out from the Nazis. I mean, the Nazis obviously occupied the Netherlands, and they didn't know where the Night Watch was. They did know, and they knew where many of these works from the uh, great Parisian museums were. But the Nazis looked at Western Europe as a place they intended to live and occupy. And, you know, they had tremendous resources, but not sufficient to uh, occupy every area of France, let's say. Okay, so they backburnered that stuff. They felt like we know where it is. We can take it when we're ready if we if we choose to do that. And ultimately, all these things are going to become part of the Reich anyway. So hmm. we want to be able to enjoy these areas as opposed to their views of the eastern portion of Europe and Russia that right. largely were just laid waste. Now, when you consider the masterpieces that were not movable, uh, David, for instance, in Florence, they anticipated the bombing. And how did they save David? Well, David was a amazing situation because uh, due to its extreme size and weight, of course, it couldn't be moved. And local museum officials, in an attempt to protect it, entombed it in brick. The Academia, where the David and the adjacent sculptures by Michelangelo referred to as the slaves, 
are currently. Uh, they were there in 1940-41, and museum officials literally put them in brick silos to try and protect it from bomb damage, from vibration or fragments hitting them. Now, I think David was, that building wasn't actually bombed, was it? But the church that holds the Last Supper was bombed, and the Last Supper survived. How did that work? The Last Supper, which is painted on one of the walls, it's a fresco of a church known as Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan, was victim to an errant bomb that landed in the courtyard of that church, and it blew out three out of the four walls of the building of the refectory, and this one wall that was standing stood only as a result of artificials having placed sandbags and scaffolding to serve as a brace against this wall, and we have a magnificent photo of what it looked like before the damage, and then afterwards with all three of the walls literally missing, uh, just rubble standing there, and you can see the scaffolding, uh, knowing in other photos that we have in Rescuing Da Vinci what it looked like behind the scaffolding, and had it not been for that, there would be no Last Supper, and people all the time say, uh, what's your connection with Rescuing Da Vinci and the Da Vinci Code? And I always say, if it hadn't been for the rescuing, there'd be no code, because the Last Supper would have been destroyed. That is just breathtaking to think that the initiative of people who really understood the uh, long-term value of this, they, they took action, they propped up that wall, and all the other walls fell down. We, we wouldn't have Leonardo's Last Supper had it not been for that. It's an amazing to consider that there are only 14 accepted paintings by Leonardo da Vinci. Of course, the Last Supper, which you focused on, couldn't be moved. But of the other 13 paintings, one was stolen, The Lady with an Ermine, which is on the front photograph of the book. And then the other 12 were all in some state of movement trying to protect them. So all 14 works of art by Leonardo da Vinci are kind of the father of art as we look at it today. We're at risk of being damaged, destroyed, or stolen during World War II. So you've got on the cover of your book a photo of the, what is it called, The Lady with the Ermine by Leonardo da Vinci. Lady with an Ermine is really the the great portrait by Leonardo da Vinci, which is in Krakow, Poland. It's in the Czartoryski Museum. Uh, Not as famous as Mona Lisa. Obviously, Krakow is not as accessible to as many people as Paris has been over the years. But this painting was stolen. It was found in the possession of one of the Nazi generals, Hans Frank. And you can see uh, one of the monuments officers, Carol Stryker, a great Polish monuments officer, standing in front of the train, uh, a short photo op, if you will, having removed this painting and holding it without the frame outdoors in front of the train with uh, other Allied soldiers as they returned it to the museum after the war. Now, did I understand from your book that even in the United States, they evacuated the National Gallery, for instance, in 1942, anticipating possible bombs? It's hard to imagine today that people in the United States could have been so concerned about this, but less than a month after Pearl Harbor was bombed on New Year's Eve, December 1941, museum officials at the National Gallery of Art in Washington packed up about 70 works of art and uh, used trucks and then trains to deliver them to the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, where they sat out the war. There's more ahead with Robert Edsel and the remarkable story of rescuing Da Vinci. Just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at AA.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning how Europe's art treasures were saved from theft by the Nazis and the destruction of World War II. 
Art expert Robert Edsel is our guest. Our phone number is 877-333-RIC. That's 877-333-7425. Robert, in telling this story, do you have some hope that we can learn from this uh, in the reality that we'll be uh, dealing with wars in the future? Rick, that's a great question. In fact, it's essential. Uh, I certainly think it's important that we know the legacy of the Monuments Men, these remarkable men and women who not only had this great service to civilization during World War II, but also had such critical roles in the museum and cultural development of our country after the war. So many of them were museum directors and curators of institutions like the Met, MoMA, and so many of the magnificent museums in this country. But I think if that's all we do, we've fallen short. What we we need to do is not only learn the legacy, but also preserve it and put it to use. And I think as we look at the aftermath of the looting of the National Museum of Iraq and Baghdad, without getting into the issues of whether we should or shouldn't have been there, we were there. And it was incumbent upon us, I think, to do a much better job than we did in trying to help assist with the protection of those cultural treasures. And these monuments men, the General Eisenhower, General Bradley, General Patton, uh, President Roosevelt, Churchill, they all understood that it wasn't enough to win these battles on the ground. You had to win the hearts and minds of the people there, and you do that by showing some sense of appreciation and respect for the things that they value. And I think that's what was lacking in Iraq, and I personally believe it cost lives. I mean, these are hmm. such important things that we set the right example, and we have set the bar during World War II. These monuments men and women did, and we need to know about how they did that. Boy, it's a great message, and your book, Rescuing Da Vinci, is an inspiration in that regard. Fascinating to think about the Nazi approach to art and Hitler's approach to art. I mean, in a lot of ways, they were, I don't know if sophisticated is the right word, but they were avid art collectors. Their ideology got in there. For instance, I guess for Poland, they specifically wanted to destroy that sort of culture by ruining its great artwork. On the other hand, in Western Europe, they wanted to preserve it. Hitler had this great ambition to be recognized as an artist. And in fact, he had some ability, I'd say pedestrian, but we've included a couple of photos of watercolors that he drew. And he applied to the uh, Fine Arts Academy in Vienna and was rejected. And he believed that most of these jurors were Jews and uh, no doubt fueled his anti-Semitism. But it also was an inspiration to him as he had a rise to power in Germany to show his great taste in art and use it as a weapon of propaganda. And so works of art by artists he considered degenerate, people like Picasso, Matisse, Kokoschka, Modigliani, and others were removed from German art museums, more than 16,000 modern works of art, destroying Germany's standing in the world as a great leader of art. Hmm. And many of them were attempted to be sold, but so many more were just destroyed. Um, and he'd set up these exhibitions of degenerate art. And at the same time, he would put exhibitions of works of art he considered were important and that people should like as a way to show uh, this German race as being the super race. Uh, hmm. And it was a very, very premeditated effort on his part. One of the evocative sites you can see today in Munich that relates to the uh, reign of Hitler is the Haus der Kunst, the, the art gallery he had there. And Didn't he actually display the degenerate art in that great hall? After the war, that became General Patton's headquarters and then ultimately was a uh, an officer's mess um, hmm. after General Patton vacated this base. And it stands today complete with bullet holes that remind us of the fighting back in the 1940s. I thought this was very powerful. Uh, you quoted Hitler. He said, Hitler looked at uh, a landscape by Van Gogh, and he said, anyone who sees and paints a green sky and pastures blue ought to be sterilized. And of course, when you look at the painting in color, as we've included it, you can see that the sky is green and the meadow is blue. And we had this happen over and over again as we assembled these amazing photographs, more than 460 photographs for Rescuing Da Vinci, where rather than using my words to characterize what the person saw in the photos, we found these quotes by Hitler and Goering. I mean, the quote of Goering, if I intend to plunder and do it thoroughly, you know, you can't make this stuff up. These mm -hmm. guys were really, really determined to uh, pull off, and they did the greatest theft in history. And they had this fascinating sort of pragmatism. They had this degenerate art. They could have destroyed it, but they thought they would uh, auction it instead. So consequently, Germany auctioned away some of its greatest art, and Americans and other art appreciators picked it up cheap, right? In some cases, uh, certainly the museums in Belgium uh, benefited there is one painting that you're perhaps alluding to, a self-portrait by Van Gogh, a very important painting, right. uh, painted late in his career that was purchased by an American, Maurice Wertheimer, who ultimately donated it to the Fogg Museum at Harvard, where it can be seen today. But for the most part, 
the museum community at large was appalled at the idea that Germany was going to be taking works of art out of its museum and selling them willy-nilly. And the Germans, realizing what a public relations fiasco they'd created, attempted to assuage concerns by saying it was going to go to some war veterans fund Hmm. and adoptees of kids that were going to be parentless and stuff. But at the end of the day, none of that happened. I mean, it was greed, pure and simple, and and ideology, pure and simple. And and yet at the same point in time, some of these Nazi uh, leaders, Goering in particular, some of them had fascination for these works of art that were considered degenerate. They had to be very careful and discreet about how they went about keeping those pictures. But so oftentimes the motivation was greed. They realized there was a market for them. They could sell them and raise money and buy other things. I'm speaking with Robert Edsel. He's the author of Rescuing Da Vinci. Uh, Robert, some of the photos in there of Hitler were fast. I've never seen Hitler portrayed as an art lover and an architect and planner so vividly as these photographs. When he had a little downtime, he would love to get together with Speer or his buddies and dream about rebuilding these cities and so on. And the photographs that you got really captured that side of Hitler, demonic as he is, he he did like art. What kind of uh, art did Hitler actually like? Well, you've made a great point, Rick. I mean, Hitler liked paintings by uh, Austrian painter Walt Mueller and works that showed the human race and kind of this heroic grand style that he was always trying to describe the the Aryans, the Germans as typifying. But, you know, the bigger point here is this. You're correct in noticing all these photographs that we have of Hitler exchanging paintings for birthdays, receiving paintings as gifts from other Nazi leaders, visiting, curating, in fact, some of these uh, exhibitions that were put on over and over and over again. And uh, Hermann Goering, frequently in civilian outfit, out shopping, looking Hmm. for watches in Amsterdam or sitting there smoking a cigar, drinking champagne, looking at works of art that had been stolen for him to decide which ones he was going to keep for his collection. And the important point is this, and it's, in my view, largely been missed by historians. Lynn Nicholas in her great book, Rape of Europa, addressed this. But in the period that Germans are supposed to be knocking England out of the war, 39, 40, 41, and bombing them, in fact, what you see, the people in charge of that, primarily Goering and Hitler, are spending an enormous amount of time and resources, this whole Nazi apparatus of theft and stealing, diverted to adding to their collection, curating art, using art as a weapon of propaganda. And while I'm not saying it would have changed the outcome of the war, had those time and resources, the enormous resources Hmm. applied to troops whose sole function was to steal works of art and transport them, had those things been applied to the prosecution of the war, I don't have any doubt the war would have been quite a bit longer and it certainly would have cost a lot more lives. I found it fascinating to learn from your book that Hitler had this passionate vision of building a museum or a great art gallery called the Führer's Museum in his hometown of Linz in Austria. I never realized that he was so passionate about collecting, what, the greatest hits of his favorite art and putting it in his hometown. Tell us more about that. Hitler uh, originated from Linz, Linz on the Danube, and it's a very industrial town. It, It has some interesting things to see there. It's not a particularly beautiful place relative to so many of the other locations in Austria and certainly throughout Europe. But Hitler saw it as as wanting to replace Vienna as the cultural capital of Europe. And he was, I think, not just fascinated with this idea, but obsessed. We have this unbelievable color photograph of him in the bunker less than a month before he kills himself, staring at the scale model of Linz as the town would be rebuilt. And At the center of the city was this museum that was going to be known as a Führer Museum that would house these greatest works of art in the world. You know, to be thinking that with the sound of Russian artillery pounding away at the Reichschancellery and so many uh, beleaguered leaders of what was left of his army staff walking through the bunker and he would pull them over and very excitedly tell them with a sense of conviction about how he was still going to pull this plan off. So it's amazing to see the amount of time and conviction that he had and the distraction that it proved all through the war. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Robert M. Edsel, and Robert has dedicated a lot of time and energy into researching the story of the heroic scholar-soldiers who saved the great art of Europe in World War II and the uh, Herculean task of putting it all back together after the war. Robert's written a book called Rescuing Da Vinci, and he's co-produced a documentary film called The Rape of Europa. We got Robert on the line from Shreveport, Louisiana. Hi, Robert. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for your call. Do you have a comment for Robert? Well, yeah, I've, I've been to Paris a few times and um, soon going to Rome and Florence. I'd like to visualize the Paris of World War II. Are there any special museums? 
I'd like to see the cafes where the Nazis ate, etc. And and additionally, the same in Rome, too. Photo exhibits would be ideal, but when you're in France or Paris, it's like the war really didn't happen. I'd, I'd like more feedback from that time frame. It's an interesting comment. Robert, that's a good question, and I have uh, spent a lot of time when I'm over there trying to run down my list of places, and there's so many that uh, you do have to dig, but they're out there. Uh, Certainly when you're in Paris, you want to visit the Jeux de Pomme Museum. It's between the Place de la Concorde and the uh, Louvre. It's in the middle of the Tuileries Garden, and that's the uh, museum that at the time used to house the Impressionist paintings. Now those are all at the Musée d'Orsay. So it has various special exhibitions. But during World War II, it was the location that so many of the great works of art that were stolen from French families were brought to the Jeu de Pomme. Goering made uh, 22 separate visits to the Jeu de Pomme, coming in and out to look at works of art and decide which ones he intended to steal. And you'll find a plaque there on the Jeu de Pomme uh, wall. It's a small building that's dedicated to a French woman named Rose Vallon, who was one of the great heroines of this story, a French monuments woman who uh, kept a secret diary of all the works that came in and out of there. You might also want to go by the Ritz Hotel, because that was the location that Hermann Goering uh, liked to stay at when he was there. The Hotel Majestic was the Wehrmacht headquarters. So those give you a couple of things to take a look at in Paris. Also, when Hitler was standing there uh, in Les Invalides looking down at the tomb of Napoleon, and he looked at the uh, tomb of the great emperor, he said, Napoleon messed up. He should have made a, a tomb where people look up at him like, like I will have. <laughs> and uh, Hitler didn't quite understand his future. He also uh, commented that this was the greatest moment of his life when he stood there in control of the city. He only went to Paris one time. He was there about three and a half hours, made all the obvious stops, Le Madeleine, the Champs-Élysées and his motorcade, went to the Tour Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower, and then, of course, to Les Invalides, as you mentioned. Hmm. Uh, didn't make any stops at the museums. Uh, hmm. but Sort of a pilgrimage to Napoleon, really. It, it was. He made a remark as he was departing about while they'd intended to destroy Paris, why should they? Uh, it was going to pale in comparison to the great cities of Germany as they would huh. be rebuilt. Robert in Shreveport, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Robert. You're welcome. Robert, when we're thinking about all of this uh, taste and appetite for art that the Nazis may have had, they also spliced in their ideology. And if there was a culture that they thought was nearly subhuman, they would want to erase that culture. And a good way to do that, along with erasing the people, is erasing their art, right? It's a tragic aspect to uh, an incredibly horrific period in the 20th century with this truly world war. The Holocaust, of course, we know about the taking of lives, but There was also a Holocaust towards art and culture, and in particular in the Eastern countries. Hitler looked at the Russians and Slavs, uh, gypsies, as he did the Jews. They were subhuman. They should be destroyed. And this was such a deep conviction of his that in so many instances, he felt there were few things there to even bother stealing, that how could people who were subhuman create things that had any particular value or beauty? And so the focus was to steal the things that those cultures possessed, that came from other cultures, such as I mentioned The Lady with an Ermine, a magnificent painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Robert, what was really poignant to me was the uh, treatment of Poland, which Hitler really hit hard, and it was a particularly rich culture. It probably antagonized Hitler almost. He took the famous statue of Chopin that, that graces the park in Warsaw and spent a lot of energy getting rid of that thing, didn't he? Well, in fact, the sculpture we're referring to, he cut in half, and the upper portion of the head is seen in uh, one of our photos in Rescuing Da Vinci sitting on a flatbed train, uh, no doubt being a plan to be taken, to be smelted. Fortunately, uh, it wasn't, and you can see it back in that very park today, all put back together. But Poland was a particular focus of his, and having spent a fair bit of time in Poland for the filming of The Rape of Europa and having done some research there for the book, one's heart goes out to the Polish people when you visit cities like Warsaw and see photos of what it looked like, it really looks like the surface of the moon did from some of these photos. There wasn't anything, even a chimney stack, uh, much more than the height of a person as far as you could see. It was just rubble. And now when you go back, it's so lovingly been put back together, the historic old town, right down to the unevenness of the walls and so on. I mean, it's the old town has been put back together as a testimony to the strength of the Polish culture, I think. In fact, we've used photos in Rescuing Da Vinci to show what these palaces looked like before the war, what they looked like after the destruction by the Nazis, and as they look today. And, you know, another fascinating aspect of the value of art 
this great painter, Bernardo Bellotto, painted magnificent paintings of these great European cities in the 1700s. And these works of art were actually used by city planners after the war as models on how the cities should be rebuilt. And that took place in Warsaw, it took place in Dresden and other places. And we've actually used some of these works and juxtaposed them next to how these buildings look today to allow a reader to see the precision with which so many of these buildings have been rebuilt. It's amazing to even think of being in a mindset where you know that in the next few months your city's going to be destroyed, so you better have some way to rebuild it. It's a horrific thought. I hope we uh, don't experience something like this again today. But, you know, we talk so much about the looting of paintings and sculpture, uh, cathedral bells and so on, but it was also documents, whether they were musical manuscripts, Hmm. uh, city records, and those things are essential. Today we, of course, digitize so much of the stuff, but they were absolutely essential to the operation of these cities and essential to the rebuilding of them, and in many cases, the damage and destruction to them, or the theft. I mean, hundreds of thousands of things are still missing today, and they had to find other solutions towards the rebuilding. Must be millions of man-hours and thousands of tunnels and caves and hidden places to store all of this during those difficult times. In fact, these monuments men inspected more than 2,000 different locations where they found hidden works of art, documents, and other things. They inspected literally thousands of places with reports, but in more than 2,000 locations, they found whether it was one painting or 10,000 paintings, Hmm. whole yards filled with church bells, more than 5,000 church bells in Hamburg that were Hmm. taken from cathedrals throughout France and Belgium. So it was just an astonishing scene. Did the Nazis gather 5,000 church bells just to melt them down for the metal, or were they going to make a church bell museum or something like that? (laughs) That's a good question. I feel fairly sure that they were going to smelt them. But these monuments officers, to their credit, uh, were able to study these church bells. And in many cases, with the age and historical importance of these church bells, they had uh, identification marks showing either the name of the church that it was from or the foundry where it was made and... Week by week, month by month, they put them on the back of flatbed trucks. We have uh, archival footage of that. We don't use it in uh, The Rape of Europa, but it will be out on our DVD. And uh, you can see these cranes arriving on the back of trucks in these small towns, and the people literally just going crazy about the idea that this important relic of theirs wasn't destroyed. It's been returned, and it gives a great sense of pride to see These cranes lift these bells back up and put them on the cathedrals to the scene of townspeople throwing flowers up on the truck at the workers in gratitude. There's some great phrase about Italy being the land of a thousand bell towers, and people really relate to the sound of their bells and to think that they survived the war and went back to their rightful towers. By the way, the documentary film Robert co-produced about the work of the Monuments Men is called The Rape of Europa. It's been playing at art house cinemas and film festivals around the U.S. and Canada over the past year, and it plays in Seattle February 8 through 14. The Rape of Europa was also nominated for Best Documentary Screenplay by the Writers Guild of America. There's more about rescuing da Vinci and what the work of the Monuments Men means to us today. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK, and you can add your stories to the message board in our radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. We're learning how the art treasures of the Western world were saved from World War II destruction today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with art expert Robert Edsel. He's documented these stories with hundreds of rare photographs in the book Rescuing Da Vinci. And he's co-produced the documentary film The Rape of Europa, based on the book by Lynn Nicholas. Robert, you're the founder of the Monuments Men Foundation, is that right? It is. We haven't really talked about the foundation itself. Give us a little rundown on that, please. There was a lull in uh, the focus on this story uh, for so many years after the war. These Monuments Men came home and went to work like so many of the great generation, wanted to just get back and have their family and build a career. And as I mentioned, so many of these men and women uh, had important careers at the great cultural institutions in this country. The New York City Ballet, as an example, was the brainchild of one of the monuments officers, uh, Lincoln Kirstein. Uh, And there's nary a museum of importance in this country that the monuments men didn't either run or work at as a curator. But their story was largely lost after the war. I mean, it just got lost in the fog of history. And Lynn certainly brought attention to the whole story of Nazi looting with her book in 1994. And 
then I think attention again fell away. And so my focus was to come in and, and seeing uh, some of the disasters that have taken place in more recent years, the destruction of these great Buddhas by the Taliban in, mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, the aftermath of the looting of the National Museum of Iraq and Baghdad, and the horrible price our country in particular paid in world press, appearing that we were insensitive to other cultures' treasures, that we didn't care. We were only interested in commercial aspects which I don't believe is the case, but certainly we made a lot of mistakes. And so the creation of the Monuments Men Foundation had really two objectives. One was to bring profile to who these men and women were and seek the public's help in being able to track down to determine are there any other living Monuments Men out there. We know of 12 right now, 11 men, one woman who's uh, British. She's the only non-American in the group that's still living. Uh, but there are about 100 names we're still trying to research and track down and also seek the public's help in trying to find some of these hundreds of thousands of works of art that are still missing and be a resource for people that may have questions, whether it's soldiers that may have inadvertently taken some of these things and not know what they were uh, from any country or uh, perhaps something that's been stolen has been sold down the chain of title. So in some respects, the Monuments Men Foundation is carrying on the work of the Monuments Men, and we were very honored in November of last year to receive the National Humanities Medal, uh, which was awarded by the president at the White House for our work. Robert, this is a very subjective thing, but you've done a lot of studying and a lot of thinking on this. What do you think were the greatest artistic losses in World War II? Well, I think perhaps the uh, the most lasting loss is just this altered legacy of the Hitler and Nazis, which we still live with today. I mean, when we go to cities like Pisa, we think the Leaning Tower is the primary thing to go there and see. Prior to World War II, uh, most of the people went to Pisa to see the Campo Santo, which is the ancient cemetery built in the 12th and 13th centuries adjacent to the Leaning Tower, which at the time housed one of the greatest collection of frescoes, one of the largest collection of frescoes in the world. And unfortunately, during the battle for Pisa, artillery round landed short on the building's roof. It caught it on fire. It was made out of lead, and the lead melted and bled down the walls, blistering these frescoes. And for uh, those that are perhaps headed to Florence, make a day trip over to Pisa and see the Campo Santo, and you'll see scaffolding there, current scaffolding for the work that continues 50 years after the war, trying to repair these frescoes. They literally glue the pieces that were scooped up in shovels back together again and uh, put them on plaster boards and then hang the boards to try and restore it to the extraordinary grandeur it had at one point in time. And in fact, one of the Monuments men, a great officer named Dean Keller, when he died in 1992, the uh, people of Pisa asked his family to uh, bury his remains Mm. in the Campo Santo out of recognition to him for the extraordinary role he had Upon arriving in Pisa, protecting and mitigating the damage there, and you'll find his gravestone there in Campo Santo. It's a fascinating sight. Everybody, as you said, everybody does go to the Leaning Tower, but they miss the baptistry, they miss the Duomo, both filled with great art. There's a related uh, museum a couple hundred yards away. That's right. It's a beautiful exhibit on how they made those precious frescoes, and that's a good example of some of the losses we're still feeling today artistically from uh, bombings of, of World War II. What about uh, American Allied looting? I don't think we did it as a as a policy, but I know when I was in Berchtesgarten, uh, up at Hitler's Eagle's Nest, there was all sorts of souvenirs chipped off the wall and so on, and I understand there's a little bit of that going on in Baghdad also. What have you learned about what the Allied troops may have done to the detriment of Europe's patrimony? Well, Rick, you've seen these so many of these things firsthand, and you're correct. I have a, a colleague and friend who goes to Berchtesgarten and other places in that area of the Austrian Alps and constantly tells me stories of visiting with uh, townspeople and they'll get out their Hermann Goering chinaware or something that have AH initials on them. So Hmm. there was certainly a lot of looting by the peasantry and I'm sure that there are things that are valuable that are in people's closets and attics that in the course of time we'll see. But you're absolutely correct. There was looting by troops of all armies, by displaced persons, of which there were millions, tens of millions. It's hard to imagine, especially for younger people today, the sense of destitution that was seen in Europe after the end of the war. And I think in the case of American troops, it was uh, kind of the history of soldiering to have trinkets of war. And more oftentimes than not, we think of things like bayonets and rifles and Nazi swastikas, flags, and so on. But in some cases, there were works of art that were taken, uh, library books had been stolen by the millions by the Nazis that sometimes were found in these places. You know, that's something that's certainly not permissible today. It was kind of the course of conduct back then. And I think you have to distinguish it from the situation of the Nazis where they're 
absolutely targeting not just works of art but races to try and either extinguish or rob. But as these soldiers pass these days, we find things in attics and basements that families have. They oftentimes don't know what to do with them. And this was really brought to our attention last year when we were contacted by the heirs of an American soldier who was stationed near Burke's Garden and actually visited the Berkhoff in May 1945 and removed two uh, leather-bound albums that he wanted to take as a trinket. And they had been in the attic of this family all these years. And in fact, these were albums of photographs of works of art that have been stolen by Nazi troops stationed in Paris from the great French dealer collecting families. And Hitler had these at the Berkhoff. He would flip through them like uh, mail-order catalogs, deciding which works oh. of art he intended to have in his museum. And we were able to work with his family and gain possession of these albums. And on November 1st of last year, uh, I and the Monuments Men Foundation donated them to the National Archives, where they joined the other 39 albums, thought to be the only 39 that survived the war. But we know there are more of these things out there, and we encourage people to visit the Monuments Men Foundation website. It's monumentsmenfoundation.org. If they have questions about things that they come across or perhaps have something they think is stolen or looted or if they know of someone that's got something like that, we implore you, please contact us. It's a not-for-profit foundation, a 501c3, and we do this to continue the work of the Monuments Men and help these things find their proper home. So do you think there's actually famous art masterpieces hanging in somebody's rec room secretly? They just enjoy it for them selfishly for just them and their best buddies? I'm I'm quite certain that's the case. I don't know about sharing it with best buddies because obviously uh, once you invite that first person in and then yeah. tell them not to tell anybody <laughs> else, uh, you kind of know the chain of events that's going to happen. But there is no doubt that there are important works of art by the most famous and beloved artists in the world, both impressionist works of art and old master paintings, sculptures, musical manuscripts, instruments, stained glass. I mean, you run right down the list that uh, were t- either stolen Uh, and I I use that word where someone quite deliberately took something they knew what it was, or taken, and I use that word to characterize people that may have picked something up as a trinket, not necessarily knowing what it was. And as the people that were involved in these things pass, they're going to be passed on to their families, to their estates, and typically people don't inherit passions. They get these things and choose to sell them. And as they do, Today, the system asks three questions. What is it? Where did it come from? How did you get it? And as that takes place, people are going to find out that these things uh, are something that they shouldn't have for whatever reason. And that's the role of the Monuments Men Foundation is to work with those people and help identify what it is and do the right thing and getting it back to the right place. But is there a fund that has to buy these back at the market value or is it considered stolen and, and they owe it back? Well, it's an area that's somewhat complicated law, and the laws differ from Europe, where they observe more Napoleonic law than in the United States, where we tend to say that once a theft, always a theft. If someone stole it and you've bought it in good faith, you still have something that was stolen and it should be returned. So they're complicated situations, and certainly in the instance of anyone having something that they know was stolen, then they run risk of creating a problem for themselves. This was a concern that the family that we worked with had that had these two albums, and as I say, it's complicated, so we're unable to necessarily give people a comfort factor that it's okay to have this. But what our focus is is, hey, look, do the right thing. You know, we live in different times now. What was uh, condoned up until 1945s, it's a different world today. And the people that I've met with in many circumstances that have these situations, they don't want to own something that was stolen, in particular if it was stolen from a family that was killed or murdered during the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a great feeling to participate in returning these things to the countries from which they were stolen. And I think there's little our country can do that's more helpful in rebuilding these historic alliances than continuing the work of the Monuments Men by returning these things to the countries from which they were stolen. And I promise you, and you know this from all the time you spent in Europe, these things return to countries, even if it's something like a violin or a rifle or a a book from a library, it's enormously appreciated by the Europeans to get these things back. It curries such great favor for our country. But then that kind of leads into this whole restitution controversy lately where some of the great Klimt paintings in Vienna ended up back in the United States. What's the latest with that, and how does that happen? Well, there was a lady, there is a lady, and what a lady, Maria Altman, uh, 90-some-odd years old, living in Los Angeles, just a remarkable person who uh, came home from her honeymoon in Vienna 
as a young woman to uh, see Nazi officers standing there in her living room taking works of art off the wall, removing the necklace around her neck, which ultimately was given to Hermann Goering. And she and her family uh, were some of the fortunate few and were able to flee Austria. They immigrated to the United States and left most everything behind, started over. And she, uh, in her mid-80s, was encouraged to pursue trying to recover five paintings by Gustav Klimt, the great Austrian expressionist, that had been stolen from her family, two paintings of which were portraits of her aunt, Adele Bloch-Bauer, one of them known as the gold portrait or gold lady. Right. She had to take on the country of Austria in litigation in the United States. She exhausted her appeals in Austria. This litigation lasted for seven years before the Austrian government finally entered into a a settlement agreement and agreed that these five paintings had been stolen from her and that the museum, the Belvedere Museum in Vienna, that had housed them publicly for people to see all these years, uh, shouldn't own them and that they should be returned. And I will say, Maria Altman went to great lengths to try and arrange for the government of Austria to buy these works of art or some uh, hybrid situation that they could continue to remain available to the public there, and they would have nothing to do with that. And the works of art were ultimately returned to her last year in uh, Los Angeles. You know, people sometimes wonder why do people that get these things back sell them, but in her case, she lives a very modest lifestyle Uh, It hasn't changed her lifestyle one bit. She's got a family that's so large with cousins and nephews and nieces and grandchildren, and she was trying to look out for them. And so she made an effort to try and uh, place these things in museums, and ultimately one of them was purchased by Ron Lauder, and it can be seen today at the Noya Gallery in New York and Manhattan. It's their signature piece, and it was purchased for a significant sum in excess of $100 million dollars. And the other four paintings were placed at Christie's for sale at auction and were successfully sold to private collectors. We don't necessarily know whom. So it does fuel some controversy to the extent that why should these things be taken out of a public museum where they're seen by the public and returned to someone that wants to sell them? On the other hand, I say to people, if this was something that your great-grandfather had and he'd uh, intended for your grandfather to have it and give to your father and give it to you, and it's stolen, you know, it's yours, and you should have the right to be able to do with it as you please. And as I say, in her defense, she made a great effort to try and keep it in the public. And one of these works, the most important one, the gold portrait of her aunt, is available to be seen in New York, and it's extraordinary work of art. And plenty of great Klimt's remain in Vienna in the great palaces and museums there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsel, who's written Rescuing Da Vinci, and Robert also co-produced the documentary film The Rape of Europa, dealing with the uh, heroic struggle to save the great artwork of Europe in World War II. And we have Sheldon calling us from Amarillo, Texas. Hi, Sheldon. Hello, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. Yes, sir. Uh, Robert, I was wondering, does your book speak uh, very much to the Monument Men, and also where can we get the DVD? The DVD will be uh, available, I think, at uh, Amazon and uh, most of the places you're probably used to getting them. The book speaks uh, predominantly to the Monuments Men. It focuses certainly on Hitler and the Nazis' theft, but it has the first readily available published list of Monuments Men. It's the most accurate list that we're aware of. We are constantly adding to the list and writing biographies on these people. We seek the public's help and helping to identify uh, various uh, monuments officers whose photos we still don't have. And in about 100 cases out of 350, we have merely a name. And so we have researchers that are continuing on to try and do the research on these men and women and track them down. And, of course, the treasure hunt continues. There's still hundreds of thousands of works of art and more than uh, millions of documents that are missing of inestimable value that uh, were contacted. Uh, people make inquiries from time to time, either thinking they have something that was taken or stolen. And we work on an anonymous basis through the Monuments Men Foundation with people to try and help them so that these works of art and other important relics can find their way back to the proper home. Lynn Nicholas's book that you're referring to, The Rape of Europa, which is the yes, subject sir. of our documentary film, is, uh, is an incredibly uh, thorough book in describing the whole Hitler uh, Nazi apparatus, their premeditated and planned looting, the methodologies that they used, and it introduces the Monuments Men. It provides a good explanation of how the organization was created and uh, introduces some of the people, and we've tried to expand on that work and then focus on 
putting that legacy to use in uh, protecting cultural treasures during armed conflict. Very good, very good. Well, probably here by April, May, it should be out uh, available on DVD. Sheldon, thanks for your call. Thank you, sir. Robert, obviously a lot went into this project. After all is said and done, what have you accomplished? Well, uh, it's a very, very gratifying process, Rick, uh, because I've, of course, been places that uh, I would never have had another opportunity to see. And more importantly, I've met uh, real-life heroes, these uh, 15 living monuments men, three have since died, that I've had a chance to interview and spend time with, and so many other first-hand participants in this greatest theft in history and the greatest treasure hunt that followed. But I think it's important to realize that all this art out there, it doesn't belong to the museums that have possession of it. They're temporary custodians. There's a word in English we don't really use much anymore called usufruct, fruitful enjoyment, the idea that we're all temporary custodians of these things, and I think we all share in the obligation to try and protect these things, not just the museums, not just soldiers, but all of us can do our role in trying to recognize works of art and preserve them, and in this case, recognize the people that did preserve them during World War II, who've allowed us to travel to these great institutions throughout Europe and in Russia and in cases uh, in the United States, and still be able to enjoy that creative spark, that magnificent relief from an otherwise hectic life to see something so beautiful that survived the greatest destruction in history. To be inspired by what other people have created and to leave that to inspire people in the future. Well, all these works of art have survived for a reason, because others came before us, decided they were important, and they were part of who we were as a civilization. And the monuments men and women did absolutely the most remarkable job in gifting to our world today the opportunity to experience that. Robert Edsel, author of Rescuing Da Vinci, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rick. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Thanks to Eric Bright at KERA Dallas for recording help today and to Anne-Marie Barmore of Houston for recording the church bells in Monarola, Italy. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.